Hello and welcome to Minutes of Metalography, the mother of all metalography podcasts. Today I'm joined by Gabe Lucas, a senior metalographer and metallurgy laboratory team leader at Scott Forge Company in Spring Grove, Illinois. Gabe has an extensive background in metallography and today he is going to share some of his knowledge. Gabe, you are the show's first guest, so thanks for joining. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Anytime, anytime. So not everyone is familiar with what metallography is exactly. Could you give a basic description of what it is? Sure. Metallography is a descriptive science of the macro and, ma and microstructure and properties of metals. Uh, so we are using different types of microscopes to analyze the structures. Uh, ceramics and polymer materials can also be prepared and analyzed using metallographic techniques. Uh, when applying this um, metallographic techniques to rocks, it's actually called petrography. So what exactly can be learned from metallography? Uh, analysis of materials microstructure helps us determine if the material has been processed correctly and is therefore a critical step in determining product reliability and for determining why uh, materials or products might fail. All right, so you, you've mentioned uh, like using microscopes on, on different materials for like ceramics, rocks for petrography. Um, what other types of material, what, sorry, what other types of equipment is used? Uh, various types of saws, automatic polishing equipment, vibratory polishers are used in sample preparation. Chemicals are used in um, a number of ways to etch or reveal the microstructure of metals. Uh, it, doing quantitative metallography, it can be performed either manually or through use of computer-aided image analysis. You've been in this field for a while now. What types of skills are good to have? Um, you know, like what types of skills make someone successful in this field? Well, there's a wide range of activities in metallography. Uh, starting with sample prep, having manual dexterity is important. The ability to follow uh, procedures is a must too. Uh, one should have developed uh, correct laboratory practices and skills for handling strong acids and bases that are used to create etchants. The uh, correct laboratory practices also include things like cleaning up after polishing or cleaning up a fume hood. Um, a basic understanding of chemistry and metallurgy are very helpful. An understanding of scientific principles must. Patience and determination are also um, a must in this field. So you've mentioned, you know, several things. You mentioned quantitative metallography. You've mentioned, um, you know, doing like uh, using various equipment uh, to evaluate different materials. Let's try to put that all in context. So you work in the metallography lab at Scott Forge Company. What exactly does Scott Forge do? Glad you asked. Scott Forge is proud to be a 100% employee-owned American manufacturing with a 128-year track record of successfully focusing on solving our customers' greatest challenges. With five U.S. facilities and 500-plus employee owners, Scott Forge offers the most modern open-die and rolled-ring forgings, machining and downstream capabilities in North America. Most of the, the wheels uh, of the, from the wheels of the NASA Curiosity Mars rover to the <clears throat> mission critical components of nuclear submarines to the large hydraulic cylinders for the largest mining trucks on the planet, Scott Forge creates the precision forged metal parts used to determine to de for these demanding applications all over the world. So how does metallography benefit Scott Forge? 
Scott Forge manufactures forgings for many critical applications. Melographic analysis is used to ensure that all the processes that were used to create the product have had the desired effect and that the product performs um, performance meets or exceeds our customers' expectations. So, you know, you have a component going through Scott Forge, it gets forged um, to shape, and then like, you know, a sample comes to the MET lab. Could you give a walkthrough of a sample's lifetime in the MET lab? What steps does a typical sample go through? Sure, let's take a look at two common types of specimens, one for microclonus and one for grain size. When we receive the material in the shot traveler, we, they are checked against each other so that we are certain that we have the right material with the right shop traveler. Then the test blanks are marked where the actual specimens will be sectioned from the, uh, and the test mold cups are marked with all the pertinent information. Uh, a wet abrasive saw is cut, used, um, is used to section the material sec specimens. They are washed and rinsed and then in ethanol and dried. The next step is mounting. A two-part um, quick curing epoxy is used. The specimens are placed in a mold cup. <clears throat> the epoxy is mixed and poured in the molds. It takes about two hours for the epoxy to cure to the point where it can be tightened into a multi-specimen carrier for grinding and polishing. Through the use of automatic grinding and polishers, we carry um, the carrier uh, containing six or 10 specimens is planarized on a coarse grinding paper. Typically that's a 60 or 180 grit paper. If the, we start at 60 grit, it would uh, be used until specimens carrier is, all, all specimens are coplanar. The specimen carrier is then um, carefully cleaned. After that, we run two minutes on 180 grit, um, changing the paper out each minute. Again, the specimen carrier is carefully cleaned. Then the same process is repeated at 320 grit, after which we go to polishing. The entire polishing machine is wiped down with a damp cloth to ensure that none of the grinding grits um, will contaminate the polishing cloths. Polishing starts with nine micron polycrystalline diamond on a hard sail cloth for two minutes. Again, the specimen carriers could carefully clean. Then the next step is three, minute, three micron polycrystalline diamond on a satin cloth for two minutes. Specimen carrier again is carefully cleaned. Now we are at a final polishing. A flock cloth is used for the final polish. The abrasive is com a com combination of two polishing compounds, 0.05 micron alumina, then we switch to colloidal silica. The resulting finish is a mirror-like. Mirror um, you can actually see a detailed reflection of yourself in the sample surface. This process is uh, performed to remove all the deformation on the surface that's going to be analyzed. Here's where our specimens take two different paths. Microclonus specimen will uh, be taken in the as-polished condition to an automated microscope equipped with image analysis to have the non-metallic inclusion rating program ran on it. The grain size specimen will be etched with the appropriate etching to reveal the grain size, and then it will be rated. After the analysis are complete, <clears throat> the specimens are stored for two years. So just a, just a few questions with what you talked about there. You, you mentioned shop traveler at the beginning, um, against like checking the sample against the shop traveler. Is yes. that just like documentation that comes with the sample? Yes, this is the um, instructions for the entire foraging as it walks through the plant. And it has every step that would be taken on the uh, forging and all testing that will be performed 
uh, on samples that are taken from either a prolonged or a sacrificial foraging. So you're just, you're matching up the material with the documentation then, essentially? Yes, yes. Okay. So you, you were talking about going from 180 to 320 to polishing. So it, that's using progressively finer grits, right? So you're using um, less and less coarse uh, grinding papers and polishing pads to be able to prep these samples, right? Yes. So it's like, uh, you know, like buffing your car or something of that nature. You're, you're slowly making it smoother and smoother and getting rid of that deformation. Yeah, the, uh, to put it in perspective, the size difference from a uh, 180 grit particle to a 0.05 micron aluminum particle would be about the same size difference as a BB to about a 40 foot uh, sailboat. So wow. a 40 foot sailboat would be the coarse particle and the BB would be a, the fine particle. Cool. So if, if Scott Forge finds metallography useful, what other companies might find it useful? Um, you know, like what, what other industries, like maybe oil and gas, national defense, what other industries find metallography to be beneficial? Uh, nearly every type of manufacturing would uh, have to employ metallography to meet the standards for their products. Um, basic appliance manufacturers to medical device manufacturers would use metallography. Um, in transportation industry, it would be bicycles to aerospace, um, the list would just be tremendous. Uh, it, it's the um, it uses it, it's also used extensively in electronic device industry. As with any other profession, change is a constant. How has metallography been changing over the over the years? Digital imaging is one of the largest advancements I have witnessed in my career. Um, SEMs also are getting smaller and more powerful and affordable. Accessories like EBSD uh, help us gain deeper knowledge of what's happening in a crystallographic and chemical sense also. Now, as metallography continues to change, what does the future hold? Uh, I started documenting microstructures using polarized film and doing uh, quantitative metallography manually by point count, intercept counts, and other similar manual processes. Uh, now digital imaging, um, we are uh, on the brink of using machine learning and artificial intelligence to analyze microstructures at an unbelievable speed. So you've mentioned quantitative metallography a few times. With metallography, I, it's, it's very visual. You know, you're looking at a, a microscopic image. Um, how can that be quantitative? Well, there's um, a variety of things you can assign a number to. Uh, in the case of grains, you can uh, have an average grain size. In the case of uh, two phases, you can have a uh, volume percentage, one phase to another. If you're looking for um, a particle size, let's say um, a carbide, you can measure the size of carbides and assign a number to that, either microns or micro inches. Um, there, there's really a, a large number of things that can be quantified. So you're Quantitative metallography is basically like developing statistics on a microstructure? Yes. Cool. Well, thanks for answering all these questions, Gabe. We're getting close to finishing up, but we have two more questions today, both of which have been submitted by listeners. Questions today were chosen from submissions to metminutes at gmail.com. Again, that is M-E-T-M-I-N-U-T-E-S at gmail.com. If you have a question that you want answered, please feel free to submit it. 
Now, Gabe, in your opinion, why is metallography a worthwhile skill to learn? What's critical in almost every aspect of manufacturing, um, it's also very important for uh, research and developing new materials and, and, de and determining their performance capabilities. Um, it's uh, extremely important in analyzing failures and determining causes of, for failures. Uh, there's really no end to its application when it comes to um, uh, materials and their engineering purposes. And finally, Gabe, what is your claim to metallography fame? Has a nice ring to it. <laughs> um, well, I was working in um, Concurrent Technologies Corporation. They were developing the Atlas of Formability to determine the forming envelope for a wide variety of alloys. Part of this experimentation was to deform test specimens at 10 different temperatures and 10 different strain rates. My role was to reveal the microstructure of those deformed specimens. We ran into a lot of difficulty with the nickel-based corrosion-resistant alloys. The etchants that were available at the time would not etch the uh, low energy specimens, um, that is the high temperature, low strain weight rates specimens, and immediately burn the, the low temperature, high strain rate specimens. So with the uh, task, so, so I was tasked with developing a better way of revealing those microstructures. Um, most of the available immersion etchants at the time Worked that worked well with the mid-range of the test specimen matrix contained hydrochloric acid. I chose to work on an electrolytic etchant so that the current input could be increased or decreased depending on the energy level of the particular specimen and to use HCL buffered so that it would not react with on its own with the high energy specimens. <clears throat> Finding the correct buffering agent was, was the difficult part. I tried several of them with just enough success to make me think I was on the right track. Many of the buffering agents were carcinogenic, so they were dangerous to use, making them a poor candidate for long-term use. I happened to be reading an article on uh, using diluted and, or buffered HCL to remove corrosion products from fracture surfaces prior to performing fractography in an SEM. Uh, those, um, uh, corrosion products would cause charging and, and obliterate a fine detail. Uh, the article suggested using uh, a number of buffering agents that I had tried and it stressed uh, appropriately the precautions and the dangers. However, the article mentioned that 48% aqueous lactic acid in HCL also was used um, with um, success in some of the corrosion sur corroded surfaces. Um, now, the ratio they used was uh, four parts HCl, one part lactic acid. That didn't quite um, do it for my specimens because the HCl was still reacting with the high energy specimens. So I decreased the HCl content to three parts HCl and one part lactic acid. That, that found the sweet spot right there. Most of the specimens in the test matrix had no reaction. The low energy specimens were not etching uh, completely though and there was a significant number of grain bodies that weren't being revealed. Um, so it wasn't complete success yet. So one day I was etching, doing corrosion sensitivity testing with 10% oxalic acid. It occurred to me that I could try adding oxalic acid to the etching. I started um, experimenting by adding one gram um, 
to a, a 200 miller solution of the uh, lactic acid and, and hydrochloric. I increased it and got pretty, pretty good results. I increased it to two grams and further improved the results. So naturally I tried um, three grams, um, which um, greatly improved the results. Then I tried four grams and found that I couldn't dissolve that much <laughs> into the solution. Um, didn't really figure on the solubility levels at that point. So I settled on three grams, uh, hydro, or three grams of oxalic acid is just about um, the saturation level for 150 milliliters of HCl and 50 milliliters of 40%, um, 48% lactic acid. This is a formula that we use today. This whole process and experimentation took about four months to, to come up with what we have today. Wow, that's like really cool insight into how an, you know, an etchin is developed. It's it's, is it developed with your name on it? Yes, it, it's been published as Lucas's reagent, yes. So you developed your own Ashton. I'd, I'd say you'd earn my vote for the Metallography Hall of Fame. Thank you, Jonathan. <laughs> and that does it for this episode of Minutes of Metallography, the mother of all metallography podcasts. Thanks for joining today, Gabe. You're welcome. If you like this episode, please consider following the Minutes of Metallography podcast. To contact the show with any questions or comments, please email metminutes at gmail.com. Again, that is M-E-T-M-I-N-U-T-E-S at gmail.com. This email is also listed in the show's description. Thank you for listening.